Our Father, O oh Lord, we dare not take these times, Lord, lightly, where we open up your word and look upon the pages of your scriptures who reveal you. And, Lord, as we think about our brethren in many other countries who, Lord, don't have the freedom to have a Bible in their hands as we do, who are not able to open up the scriptures, take them home with them, Lord, um, put them in their office, wherever. Lord, what a privilege we have to be blessed by you that we are able to do that. And I pray that, Lord, we may take that to heart and that we may cherish and treasure the times when we get to hear from you, Lord, both privately and publicly. Father, I pray even now that you would give us soft and tender hearts, ears that are eager to hear your word and to appropriate it to our lives. Father, help us to be people who whose view of you arises higher and higher of your majesty and your glory, that it might transform the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we live in our misplaced priorities, that we may, Lord, align our will to your will. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, somebody asked a few days ago, hey, so are you going to return back to Colossians? And then I answered... No, not this Sunday, but next Sunday we will be back in the book of uh, Colossians, and I'm looking forward to returning to Colossians as well. Um, But I did want this morning to kind of do a wrap-up message uh, to our series that we've been uh, working through on the Calvary Distinctives. Uh, As you know, uh, in the last couple of months, we've been working through the series titled The Calvary Distinctives, and we've seen eight of those kind of biblical priorities Um, that we desire uh, that would govern and guide uh, life and ministry here at Calvary Bible Church, both personally and corporately. And we've seen eight of these, haven't we? We've uh, talked about the fact that we want to be a Bible-centered, Christ-exalting, God-dependent, love-expressing, worship-motivated, service-oriented, mission-focused, mercy-promoting church. This is who we are. And by God's grace and the power of the Spirit of God and by the guidance of God's holy word, beloved, we want to be these things all the more. Amen? So we want to be. And I told you throughout that the purpose of this series is really twofold. Uh, On the one hand, we want to be reminded of priorities that have been true to some extent or another uh, here at Calvary Bible Church in the past. I believe that with all of my heart. And then on the other hand... We also want to make sure that we solidify and crystallize biblical priorities that should continue to guide and govern ministry into the future. And we know that times are changing and difficult seasons. If they were here before, they continue to, uh, things get more intense and persecution is rising and opposition is becoming more fierce. Um, If you are uh, not noticing that, then you need to start noticing that. Okay, uh, times are becoming more and more difficult in our country and all around the world. Okay, so it's important for us to solidify and crystallize things that we want to be about and we want to be focusing upon. Now, as we wrap up this series, this morning is very, very important. Um, I want you uh, to challenge us personally and corporately, uh, and I mean that. I want you to really think and ponder on what the implications for these distinctives are for you personally. And obviously for us corporately. 
But oftentimes when we hear the Word of God and we hear what God wants from us, we tend to kind of think about the other person that should be hearing these things rather than ourselves. And we fail to do the most basic thing, which is, is a personal self-examination of how maybe we have misplaced priorities in our own personal lives. I really want to challenge us to consider uh, what the implications are of these biblical distinctives for us. Because you see, it would have been very easy for many of us, perhaps, to have sat through some of these messages and maybe assessed ourselves various, uh, in various ways. And maybe assessed our church in various ways. Perhaps some of us uh, have proudly believed that some of these biblical priorities are true of us already, whether individually or as a church. So therefore, what is the, the value in actually going through some of these things and rehashing through them over and over again? Perhaps others of us have sat through messages like these and we've thought, well, who am I? And what do I have to offer in this whole thing? I mean, these, seem, these things seem like high, lofty priorities. Where do I fit in all of this? Who am I, after all? What do I have to give and contribute here? The root of that kind of mentality also is pride, isn't it? Because it is not about you. And it is not about me. Left to ourselves, we have nothing to offer. We have, we have been given everything that we have as believers, beginning with, obviously, the salvation of our soul. And so we need to realize that we do have something to contribute, right? Each and every one of us being a member of the body. Others of us, perhaps, um, are the, we're the, the person that needs some guidance as to why these biblical distinctives are important and pertinent to our lives. Maybe you've wondered, what difference do these biblical priorities make to the life and the future of our church? Is there any value to these for our church? And this is why I want to to focus our attention this morning really on four reasons why these biblical distinctives are, are crucial and important to us personally and to the life of the church. And I suppose that I could have led off this series by talking about the importance and the crucial nature of these biblical distinctives. I could have done that, but I did not do so, beloved, for a very specific reason. And it is this. I am not concerned about giving you some formula, giving you some spiffy statements to hang your thoughts on. I'm not concerned about the latest fads in Christianity. I don't care about the latest programs, the latest innovative methods. I don't care about those things. What I care about is one thing. What does God say we need to be about personally and corporately as a church? That's what I care about. That's what you care about. Amen? And so I hope that as we walk through this series, you realize that even the way that we worded those are not for the purpose of providing some spiffy kind of uh, set of statements for you, but maybe to facilitate memory. But I hope that you've seen above anything and everything that those, these are biblical priorities, biblical distinctives that we are calling one another to as a church and as individuals. Okay? So with that said, here are four reasons why these biblical distinctives are crucial, important for us as individuals and as a church. First and foremost, for foresight. For having foresight. These biblical distinctives are important because we need to be a people who have foresight. And what does that refer to? Planning. Looking forward to something. In fact, a related word is the word prudence, which has one meaning of of foresight. 
And it's related to wisdom, to insight, to knowledge. Part of living a life of prudence is having foresight by planning or making preparations for the future. And even when we talk about vision, we're not talking about ecstatic dreams, right? Or revelations from God. When we talk about vision, we're talking about having foresight, planning for the future, thinking about what could be, even if God redirects things. We understand that if God closes the doors to particular things, then we are to be flexible and sensitive to the will of God and the Spirit of God. But there is value in having foresight. And we understand that we need to be cautious with this, right? With having foresight and vision and direction and planning. Proverbs 16.9 says that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. If our way is not what the Lord has directed, then it won't matter how much we plan, how much we strategize, how much foresight we have, right? God is alone is sovereign over everything. He is in control over the big things uh, and the little details of our lives and of our church. We understand that. That at the end of the day, God is the one who rules. So we need to be sensitive and tender to His will and what He desires for us through His Word. We understand that. But it doesn't mean that we don't plan. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't practice prudence and wisdom and foresight. Listen to Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 8. It says this, The noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. And in Isaiah 32, in that passage, in contrast to the wicked, the virtuous, the noble person has a sense of direction, a sense of foresight regarding the future. Listen, Wise people don't presume upon the Lord, beloved. Wise people don't presume upon the Lord and His sovereignty over all things. Wise people don't simply throw their hands up in the air because after all, God is sovereign and what's going to happen is going to happen so there's no responsibility for me in anything. That is not wisdom. That is not having an attitude of prudence. What's the old saying? If you aim at nothing, you will hit it, what? Every time, right? If you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. It's true. If you don't have target goals, you're sure to accomplish nothing or very little. Therefore, it's important to to aim in a direction. It is profitable to strategize while keeping in mind that it is God who ultimately directs our steps for His glory and our good. And when you think about the mission of the church, we understand, like many other churches do, that the the mission of Calvary Bible Church is really, in a nutshell, the Great Commission to make disciples. We understand that. The question is, what does fulfilling the Great Commission look like in the life of this particular body? In this particular context of L.A., Burbank, and the greater Los Angeles area, we understand that, there's, that, there's a, that there are things to implement that in this particular context are going to be faithful to the Word of God and are going to help us fulfill our mission in this particular context. And of course, in anything that we implement, we want to be faithful to the Word of God and faithful to the Gospel, right? That's what we want to be about. And you know what the fun part for me as a Christian is and as a leader The fun part for me is that I don't need to come up with anything innovative or catchy for you at all or any of us. 
The fun part for us as believers is that we have the divine blueprint, the Bible, the Word of God who is our guide, right? We don't need to look to any, anything else. There are so many tactics out there, man-made, innovative methods of doing church. And many of them, most of them, are far, far, far from being faithful to the Word of God and to the Gospel. And so we don't want to be about those things. So the beauty for us in having the divine blueprint is that we can have foresight and plan and strategize and devise noble plans because the Word of God reveals those kinds of plans and principles to live by and to be governed by. That's such a joy to be able to have the Word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 105 says this, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 19, verse 8, says this, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, before we were in darkness, but now we are people who walk in the light, people of the book. We are people, beloved, of the book. We don't need to be confused, aimless, in the dark as to what God wants for our lives personally and corporately as a church. We have a very clear message in God's holy word. Amen? We're people of the book. And God is very clear in His Word what He wants His church to be about. And it is our responsibility to obey the Word of God. To trust the Lord for the results, but walk in faithful obedience to the principles of the Word of God. That's what our task is. In the power of the Spirit, we do that. By the guidance of His Holy Word. And so, beloved, what we're doing with these biblical distinctives is pointing one another... In, in the direction that God would want us to go in accordance with His Word, so that we would not be aimless, losing sight of what is most important and crucial for us as a corporate body. These are important for having foresight, first and foremost. Secondly, these biblical distinctives are important for foresight, but secondly, for warning. For warning's sake. It is good and profitable to examine these biblical priorities so that we may be warned that as a, a church, as Calvary Bible Church, even though we've stood for the truth in the past, it doesn't mean that we will in the future, beloved. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. You know, we're living in dangerous times, aren't we? Dangerous times. There are certain freedoms that as Christians... Maybe in the near future, freedoms that we have, been ta- we have taken for granted may no longer be there anymore very soon, beloved. Even the ability to, to worship corporately in this manner and to gather as we are. And we need to be, be mindful of that. And you know what? I praise the Lord that maybe my kids or grandkids or your kids or your grandkids will be raised in a culture where there will be persecution and there will be opposition. Because you know what happens? The church is purified during those times. Look at Scripture. That's what happened in the book of Acts. Whenever there's persecution, the church is purified and the church continues to expand. And you know what happens during those times as well? And during times of great persecution... People who are not genuine, who are counterfeit, who are not following Jesus are exposed. Because now they have to pay a price for following Jesus and doing what he says to do. So we had to give thanks for potentially freedoms in our country being taken away very soon. 
Let's not be fearful about that. Let's thank God that He is sovereign and He's moving in a direction with His people. Amen? Now listen, here in Acts 20, Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. And he talks to them in verses 17 and following of Acts 20 about his own personal testimony amongst them. That he was faithful to the proclamation of the gospel. He solemnly testified of the gospel of the grace of God in verse 24. He is innocent of the blood of all men, he says. He can actually say that, that he was faithful amongst these Ephesian believers. And then he warns his fellow elders. In verse 28, notice what he says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Guard yourselves, elders. Pay close attention to your example. And guard the flock. And notice, the flock that God, by His Holy Spirit, has given to them. They are overseers of God's flock. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Be on guard. Have a protective posture. And the question, of course, is, why, Paul? Why are you so serious about this? I mean, wasn't this the mighty Apostle Paul who had ministered with this Ephesian church for a number of years and he was leaving them with very good teaching and a solid foundation and he probably was involved in selecting some of these elders along with the congregation? Why is he so serious? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock and remember that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is a, a, a call from God upon your own life, elders. And it's not your flock, it's the flock of God. Why so serious, Paul? Well, notice what he says in verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The reason why Paul exhorts and warns the Ephesian elders to guard themselves and guard the flock of God, the people of God, is because of the fact that there's always the impending danger of false teaching and false teachers. Always, beloved. And notice, dangers to the sheep enter from the outside in verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. False teaching, false teachers coming from without into the fold, seeking to lead people astray, will always be the impending danger. And not only that, but in verse 30, there are dangers from from within. Notice, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice, according to verse 30, they're not concerned about speaking the truth, the Word of God. They are concerned about speaking perverse things, twisted things, and things that don't point people to Christ as being exalted in their lives, but pointing people away from Christ and and disciples coming after them, following after them. There is always the impending danger, beloved of false teaching and false teachers from without, and people rising from within to lead people astray away from Jesus Christ, away from His biblical priorities, away from fidelity to the Word of God. 
There are always those dangers. And notice what he calls false teachers in verse 29. Savage wolves. Savage wolves. There is no uh, um, candy coating anything in here, is there? He calls them savage wolves, which were generally uncontrolled, filthy, unreasoning animals who have no concern for the flock. They only are about themselves. They're only concerned for their own cravings, seeking to feed on the sheep. They're only there to harm and kill and destroy. Not faithful shepherds, right? Not faithful shepherds. Faithful shepherds want to care for the flock. Faithful shepherds want to protect the flock. Faithful shepherds, beloved, are concerned for you running hard after Jesus, not running hard after them. Amen? So in light of that, look at verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul says, look at my example and be watchmen. Be on the alert. And this is the case first and foremost for us as elders, beginning with me. But it also, beloved, extends to you, the congregation. You need to call us to be faithful to the one book, the one blueprint for the church. Amen? You need to be faithful to that. And you personally need to stand in the truth, stand faithful to the Word of God and the one true gospel. It's your responsibility as well to hold fast the faithful Word. To never stop looking to the Word of God as the source of your guide. And that which gives you wisdom to live life and to become more and more holy and conforming to the image of Christ. See, when we abandon the Word of God, what happens? We will be driven and tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching, by every wave of cultural shift, taken captive by every new idea. That's what happens. We're tossed to and fro. And so no matter how firm the church may be for a time, beloved, there's always the need to remain watchful, right? To remain steadfast. To remain firm in the truth. You know, the other day I was reading an excerpt um, about how every major conservative seminary in the history of seminaries, at some point in its existence, goes wayward and it goes liberal. Every seminary, with just one exception in the last 20 years, where a seminary went from conservative to liberal back to conservative. And uh, during the time that we were at the Together for the Gospel conference a few weeks ago in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, we were able to attend uh, or get a tour of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And there was another seminary literally walking distance from Southern Baptist Seminary, beautiful property, and so this guy is telling us the history of Southern and, and what happened in the last 20 years under Al Mohler, the guy who came on as the president, I believe, in 1993. And it was amazing to hear how Southern Baptist Seminary about 20 years ago and this other seminary walking distance away became so liberal that some people refer to these seminaries as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how liberal they had become. Seminaries that had been solid based upon the truth Bible-driven, had become so liberal that that's how they were known. And Al Mohler was selected to be the new president of the seminary, and he went through all kinds of persecution when he started trying to bring revival to that seminary. And all kinds of things happened. I mean, there was massive attacks and death threats upon his life. And at that time, they had two little kids. 
to the point where two years into his presidency of Southern Baptist Seminary, he talks about the fact that he, that he and his wife and his two little ones were crying, weeping, and praying to God in private in their home, wondering, Lord, what are you doing? Is this what you want us to continue to do? And he said how, he talked about how difficult that was. But would you believe, beloved, God brought about a great revival to Southern Baptist Seminary. And it was the first reversal of a seminary going from conservative to liberal, back to conservative, and now to fidelity to the Scriptures as it is. Praise the Lord, huh? You know, that doesn't always happen, though. That doesn't always happen. But whether it's seminaries or especially churches, beloved, we need to be warned that just because an entity has stood faithfully in the Word of God doesn't automatically mean that it will happen into the future, right? It doesn't mean that. We must guard the truth of God's Word because there are always impending dangers from within and impending dangers from without that threaten the church. And so as we work through some of these distinctives, beloved, and as we've seen some of these priorities, it's important to remember sound doctrine, that we must stand firm in the truth and do so in love. Amen? Thirdly, these biblical priorities are important for foresight, for warning, And thirdly, for obedience. For obedience. As we examine these biblical priorities, the question is for you personally, first and foremost, are you going to follow through with loving obedience to what God has revealed to you about your life and the priorities that you ought to be setting for your family? Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? See, it is not enough to read God's Word and to study God's Word and to grow in your knowledge of God's Word, and yet none of it leads to a different uh, a difference in perspective, in the way that you think about God, in the way that you lead your life, in the types of priorities that you keep. It makes no difference at all for you to continue to hear these things and be exposed to the Word of God and yet not follow through with purposeful, intentional, deliberate obedience. And we all know what that's like, right? Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This is a a passage that we've seen in the past. And I think speaks to this issue of what should be our response to the Word of God. James chapter 1 and verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren. Verse 19. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You know those exhortations in verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Those are not isolated exhortations given in this text. These exhortations need to be kept in mind within the following context. Which is, which is all about a right response to the word of truth, to the word of God. Apparently there were those uh, readers of James, professing believers, who were doing the opposite of verse 19. Rather than being quick to listen to the word of God, they were quick to give their opinions about the word of God, and quick to even get angry at what was being taught. You know, it's good to wrestle with God's word, to discern its meaning, But many people, frankly, just like to argue with the Word of God. Just like to argue with what God says. 
to question whether it really says what it says clearly. Many people have a very defensive posture towards the Word of God, toward clearly revealed truth. And the reason why at the core is because they want to excuse and condone their sin and their sinful behavior. They don't want to turn away from their sin. They love their sin too much and don't hold on to the truth. Because the truth hurts, doesn't it? It does. But at the end of the day, if it's God's truth clearly revealed in His Word, it is what is best for us from a good God who only gives good gifts to His children. So this attitude prompts James to instruct about what is a right response to the Word of God consist of in verses 21 through 25. And in a nutshell, it's obedience. Full, wholehearted obedience. But notice first what he said. He says in, in verse 21, he gives a prerequisite to a right response of obedience to the Word of God. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, here it is, in humility receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. Humbly receive the word implanted. This is the idea of, of welcoming the truth into your heart and into your life because it's got eternal ramifications for your soul. But what must happen if you are going to humbly receive the word of God to welcome it into your life? Notice verse 21. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness or all abundance of malice is the idea there. All evil. Put it aside like dirty clothing. In other words, the right reception of the Word of God means first and foremost that you must deal with your sin. That you must turn from your sin. I submit to you that that is the pattern for the new believer. We enter a lifetime of repentance, beloved, from dead works and an embracing more and more of Christ, right? By faith alone in Christ alone. And not only that, but that is also the pattern for the unbeliever. You must turn from your sins, deal with your sins, surrender yourself and your sin for Jesus Christ, putting your faith in the only sacrifice for your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, the right reception of the Word of God means that you deal with your sin, that you set aside your sin. And what does that require of you? But repentance, a turning from your sins, confession and agreement with God that you are a sinner, that indeed you see your sin as God sees it, an affront to His holy and righteous character. And you plead for His forgiveness, right? And we know that for us as believers, the answer will always be yes when we ask for the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. The answer will always be yes, beloved. Having dealt with our sin, then we are exhorted to obedience in verses 22 to 25. Look there in verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, listen to this, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror... For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of of person he was. I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you wake up in the morning, having slept, uh, obviously, overnight, and there's all manner of chaos, your hair is all over the place, right? All kinds of stuff, confusion in your face, right? Things are going opposite direction than they should be going. How many of you look at the mirror and see a reflection of yourself 
and a clear representation of yourself, and yet you walk away doing nothing about it. How many of you do that? Maybe a teenager would have raised his hand in the first, in the first service. None of us do that, beloved, right? When we behold chaos and the mess that we are in the mornings, we do something about it. We follow through with action. We clean ourselves. We comb our hair. We do whatever we need to do to fix that mess. None of us will be caught dead showing up to church the way that we looked when we woke up, right? We have done some fixing. How silly is that? And that's exactly the point that James gives. How silly it is for a man or a woman to look upon a reflection of themselves in the Word of God, the mirror of the Word, and see themselves for the sinners that they are, and walk away and do nothing about it. Not respond in obedience to the changes that need to be made. How silly. Right? What about the other person, verse 25? The doer. But one who looks... Notice, intently. It's a deliberate look. Careful look. One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. These are synonymous with the Word of God. The perfect law, the law of liberty. And abides by it. In other words, remains under it. Submits to the Word of God. Abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. You want to be happy? Yes or no? You want to be a happy believer on this earth? Like experience present and eternal happiness? Delight yourself in the Lord and in His Word, beloved. Delight yourself in the law of God, in the law of liberty. What James tells us here in some is that God requires obedience to His Word. Notice, the one who is not a doer of the word is the self-deceived person, the careless person, the carefree person, the ultimately clueless person, which is the whole point of the illustration, right? Of walking away from the mirror and doing nothing about what you just saw. Clueless. Foolish. The one who is a doer of the word, on the other hand, is a deliberate careful, reflective, meditative, deliberate believer who skillfully and purposefully practices the truth in his or her life. That person who practices the truth and walks in loving obedience to the Lord is the blessed person. Even if at times obedience comes with a price, beloved, and a cost, at the end of the day, you want to walk in loving obedience to the Lord. Amen? To your own hurt. You know, I've met a lot of Christians who consider obedience, and as soon as you start talking about obedience, it's like, you know, that's an add-on to being a Christian. You're being legalistic. That's legalism, for you to focus on obedience. You know what? The Lord focuses on obedience, right? He wants us to obey His Word. Focusing on obedience is not legalism. It is not legalism. Unless it's devoid of Christ and the power of the Spirit of God, right? We would agree with that. In the Bible, listen... Obedience is one of the best indicators that a person is a genuine follower of Christ. That a person is a Christian. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, listen to these words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? In other words, Master, Ruler, and do not do what I say. There's the profession, Lord, Lord. It doesn't matter how much you profess Jesus as your master and your ruler, but you do not do what he says. You are a contradiction, according to the word of God. 
You're a contradiction to say that Jesus is your Lord and yet you disobey His Word. Matthew 7, 21-23. In the Sermon on the Mount, some of the most frightening words in all of Scripture. Listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's the profession, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice, I never knew you. There was no relationship between you and I. No love bond relationship. I didn't know you. And not only that, but he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, they had no obedience in their lives. They were contra the word of God. But Kempis, what about love for God? I mean, isn't loving God what being a Christian is all about? What would you answer to that? Yes, absolutely loving God is what being a Christian is all about as well. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love is absolutely prominent. We've seen that, right? Distinctive number four. We are a love-expressing church. We are to be people who love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another. Amen? We've seen that. But how... Does God tell us that we might know that we truly love Him? How does He tell us? John 14, 15, listen to this. If you love me, you will keep my, what? My commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is how we show the fact that we trust Jesus, that He is all good, all sufficient Savior, and we want to obey Him because we treasure Him and we cherish Him and we know that He has our best interest in mind for His glory, so we obey Him, right? John 14, verses 23 to 24. If anyone loves me, ready for this? He will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. If you love God, beloved, you will follow through with obedience. Even when it's hard? Even when it's hard. Even when there's a price to pay? Yes. Even, when, even to my own hurt? Yes. Yes. Because that shows that you treasure your infinite Savior, Redeemer, who is worthy of your trust, doesn't it? You want to obey Him. Even if it means that you need to give up your pet sin. Even if it means that you need to give up living for your pleasures and your misplaced priorities. You must walk in obedience to the Word of God. And in that, you show that you truly know Him and you love Him and you treasure His commandments and they're not burdensome to you. But wait a minute, I'm a pretty religious person. In fact, I remember praying the prayer. I would ask you, what has been the fruit of your life since that prayer? Not very much obedience. Then you need to examine yourself carefully to see if you are truly in the faith. Maybe you don't belong to the Lord. And maybe this is an act of the grace of God working in your heart, being merciful toward you, so that you want, you would turn from your sins once for all, that there would be a transformation in your heart. 
But I remember walking the aisle. I remember. I mean, I walked right through the middle when there was a a pulpit call for me to give my life to the Lord. Everybody saw me. I humiliated myself. What has been the fruit of your life since that time? Wickedness, disobedience. Then you are not saved. You are not saved. You don't belong to the Lord. If there's no fruitful obedience, a pattern of obedience in your life shows the fact that you know and you love God. But I've been coming to church for years. And my parents have been bringing me to church for years. And I'm involved in all kinds of programs and all kinds of things in the church. What does your life look like? Do you love God by obeying Him? Are you walking in holiness before Him, in obedience to His Word? If not, you need to examine yourself carefully to see if you are indeed in the faith. Do you obey God? Is your greatest desire, beloved, even in your fight against sin, to do what God says? And notice what I just said, in your fight against sin, because unbelievers don't fight. Uh, for holiness believers fight for holiness because they have the spirit of god living within them and they want to be like jesus and it may be hard and there may be struggles and there may be times of stumbling but at the end of the day in the power of the spirit they're going to return to the lord and walk in obedience and in holiness amen have you experienced that in your life every day that's the life of that's the, the story of my life every day trying to put off sin and in the power of the spirit trying to walk in loving obedience to the lord's word Every day. It's pretty harsh, Kempis. Saying that a person is not a believer. Who are you to question my profession of faith? It's not me questioning it, my friend. Listen to 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments. Ready for this? The one who says, there's a verbal profession again, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Did you hear that? That's the beloved, loving disciple John talking right there. Right? Inspired by the Spirit of God. If you claim to know him and you do not keep God's commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, that is in Christ, in relationship with Christ, in that love bond, intimate relationship with Christ, in union with Christ. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And by walk he means the way that you lead your life. That you walk in the footsteps of your Lord and your Savior and your Redeemer, right? Living a life of trusting Him, knowing that His commandments for your life are what is best for you. He loves you, and He desires that you would have a fulfilled life, but not in accordance with your definition, in accordance with His and His Word, right? So I want to ask you, beloved, as we think about these biblical priorities that we've seen these last few weeks, Are you a Bible-centered person? Are you a person, don't think about others, who are devoted, who is devoted to the Word of God? Is the Word of God your final, personally, your family, for the church, the final authority in your life? Or is it psychology? 
Worldly philosophy, which we're going to be looking at next Sunday, by the way. Is it your experiences or is it the objective truth of the Word of God? Are you a Bible-centered person? Or do you just obey the Word of God when it's convenient for you? When your pet sins are allowed by your interpretation of the text, when clearly those texts are exposing your sin. What about a Christ-exalting person? Are you about Christ being your all in all? Do you treasure and cherish Jesus? Do you want to see people make much of Jesus? Do you desire to share Him with others? Do you desire to see Him exalted in the life of your family? In the life of people at work? In the lives of people in your neighborhood? Do you want to see Christ lifted high? Or is life about self-exaltation for you? And that shows itself in very subtle ways, beloved. In the types of priorities that we flesh out in our lives. In the way that we use our time. Not for exalting Christ, but for exalting self. Are you a God-dependent person? Are you living God-conscious? In the fear of the Lord, looking for His direction and things in your life. Are you looking to the Lord in corporate prayer with other believers? Are you driven to want to seek the face of God because you know that in His infinite perfections and in His majesty and glory, He alone has all wisdom, infinite knowledge, and He alone can grant you understanding? Are you a love-expressing person? Can it be said of you that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And then as a manifestation and as an expression of that love for the Lord, you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Fleshing out forgiveness, peace, striving hard to, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with your fellow brothers and sisters. Is that what you're known for? A love expressing life? Are you a worship motivated person? Is it your greatest aim to worship God and to see others do the same? Do you treasure the main event of the week even, the corporate worship service? When we're all here in this main event, unique event of the week, a picture of heaven, when we're all together worshiping the Lord, do you value and treasure corporate worship? Are you a service-oriented person? Do you love Christ and love His bride, His people, so much so that you know that you've been given spiritual gifts and abilities that you can be using for the exaltation of Christ by building up His people. Are you about that? Serving others by using your gifts. Are you a highly committed participant or a passive spectator coming in every Sunday morning simply to be entertained or whatnot? Are you a mission-focused person? Let me ask you this. Are you sharing your faith? Don't talk to me just about, well, I have lived my life before them for 10 years. Have you shared the reason why you live your life that way? Have you taken the opportunity to build relationships in your neighborhoods, in your work environments, wherever, and beginning in our home, I might add, to continue to seek to make disciples and fulfill our mission, beloved? Are you sharing your faith? And not only that, but under the umbrella of making disciples, seeing the whole process from beginning to end, are you seeking to edify other believers and disciple other believers? You know what? I'm going to come after some of you older saints right now. Okay? Some of you older men, I scratch my head. You have so much to impart to other people. 
You are so wise. I've spoken to some of you. I want to ask you right now, who are you investing your life into? Who are you investing your life into? Who are you pouring your life into via example and via the teaching of the Word of God and your life experiences and how the Word of God has taken shape in your life? Who are you taking under your wing to teach them how to be a godly father and a godly husband? Who are you doing that with? We have a famine in the land with regards to that, beloved. And I cannot exhort you enough, older men, that you need to be discipling younger men and passing on the baton of Christ-likeness to others. What about you older ladies? I'm not going to define the older, okay? Get myself in more trouble than I already am. What about you older ladies who have so much to impart to other young women? To young single women about how they could treasure Christ even in their singleness. About how younger women could be godly wives and godly mamas. You have so much to teach other women, even if you had struggles. But Kempis, who am I? Both the older men and younger and older women. Who am I? What do I have to impart? Listen to me. Were it not for the grace of God, none of us have anything. Right? The Spirit of God is working in each and every one of us. We have nothing. We brought nothing to the table, beloved, from the very beginning of our salvation, even up until now. Were it not for the grace of God, I wouldn't be here and none of you would be here. Right? None of us have anything to impart to others. Who are you taking under your wing? To practice Titus 2 types of relationships. Helping women be strong in the home. Helping men be strong in the home. Are you about the mission of making disciples? That's what that looks like. Very practically, very deliberately. In in spending time with one another and investing yourself into others. That is how you flesh out being a mission-focused people. Making disciples, right? Sharing your faith. And then when somebody is in the faith, building them up in the faith so that they would become more and more like Jesus. Passionate worshipers who know, love, and serve Christ and want to make other disciples who will do the same. Are you a mercy-promoting person? Do you practice mercy? Are you mindful of the helpless, helpless and the needy? The orphans, the widows, the special needs amongst us? the elderly, the shut-ins? Or are you just about yourself? Are you mindful of those who, who you can come alongside of and encourage as they for years in faithfulness, some of these shut-in elderly people who were here for years, faithful to this church, imparting their gifts and their abilities for the good of this church. Now it's our turn, beloved. Now it's our turn to come alongside of them. These biblical distinctives are crucial for foresight, for warning, for obedience, and lastly, for unity, for unity. And I want you to go to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll end here. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. You know, people often think of unity as the the presence of peace or the absence of conflict amongst us. And unity does refer to the presence of peace and harmony between believers, sure does. But unity also refers to the presence of, listen, common Purpose. Common purpose. Unity in a church has to do also with a church moving forward together toward one common goal and purpose cohesively together as a team. It is not just the absence of conflict unity. It is the presence of common purpose and the pursuit of one goal passionately together for the sake of the gospel. Right? 
Look at verse 27 of Philippians 1. Paul, on house arrest, wants to know that there's one thing happening amongst these believers. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, here it is, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Notice that. One of the main reasons why Paul wrote the book of Philippians was to address the conflict between two women who he explicitly names in chapter 4 and verse 2, Iode and Syntyche. He's going to deal with that issue and address it and call others to come alongside of these women to, to help bring reconciliation with these women. But the way that he does it for two or three chapters, first and foremost, in addressing that issue is by pointing these believers to a higher purpose than themselves. And what is that? He says it at the end of verse 27. The faith of the gospel. The higher purpose of God's enterprise. Because if they set their eyes on the greater purposes of the gospel, that greater goal, then there's nothing that they won't be able to work through. Nothing. Because it will be all about the advancement of the gospel, even with challenging relationships, even in difficult circumstances. When you take your eyes off of the progress of the gospel, everything becomes a big deal, right? Everything does. And Paul has lived this. In verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, he talks about rival fellow brothers who are preaching Christ just like him, but whether in, in, potentially from wrong motivations... Because they have certain opinions about him. And what does he say in verse 18? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he's talking about these gospel proclaimers who are believers, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul says, they're brothers, they're preaching the gospel, even if they're doing it from wrong motivations or they don't personally care for me, at the end of the day, what matters is that in pretense or in truth, Christ would be proclaimed. That was Paul's higher priority, beloved. That needs to be our higher priority. And as we look at these distinctives, these biblical priorities, we want to focus ourselves on what matters most. And that is the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the word of God in the lives of people. That's what we want to be about. In the church, things can become much, much bigger, beloved, bigger issues when our sights are completely off of our mission. And then everything becomes a hill to die on. Everything becomes a bone to pick with somebody else. Everything. When we've taken our eyes off of our mission, That's what tends to happen. The great difference maker is that all should be setting their sights on one common purpose, and that is the greater progress of the gospel. That is why we're here, beloved. We're here to advance the cause of Christ, right? We're here not to exalt self, but to exalt Christ by making disciples. And everything else that happens in our lives, we will be able to work through with biblical forgiveness and reconciliation in light of the fact that we have a mission to accomplish. And those things tend to get in the way of us exalting Christ and making disciples, right? This is why we're working through these biblical distinctives. Because we wish to be moving in one direction together. Not as a bunch of individuals 
doing our own thing, but as one unified body cohesively moving in one direction together for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? As we move forward, beloved, I would be encourage you to be in prayer. Be in prayer that God would help us to be faithful to Him and faithful to His Word. That we would be Bible-centered people looking to His Word for guidance. That God would help us to make much of Christ. That God would help us to be depending upon Him in prayer. Loving Him and loving one another. Worshiping personally in spirit and in truth. And corporately treasuring this time together. That we would use our gifts and our abilities to serve Christ by serving His people. For their edification. That we would be about making disciples. Sharing our faith. Coming alongside of other believers and raising them up in the knowledge of Christ. That they would be conformed into the image of Christ. Younger and older. And that we would be a mercy-promoting church who cares for the most needy and helpless amongst us. The orphans, the widows, the elderly, the single parents, I might add. The special needs people amongst us. And that for the gospel's sake, we would be willing to reach out to gospel-centered ministries that are about those kinds of mercy-promoting things for the sake of the gospel. Be in prayer for that. I would encourage all of us. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then my brother Tim Adams is going to come up with closing song. Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great God that you are. Thank you for granting us, Lord, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. I pray that, Lord, we would be faithful people, obedient to your word. That we would be people of vision who realize that we have a great God and He has left us a mission to accomplish and we can have planning and foresight and strategy and yet be sensitive when you lead in a different direction. Help us to be people who are warned to continue to remain in the truth and to hold fast to your word. Help us to be people who obey you because we love you and because of our intimate relationship with you. And help us to be people who are in walking in unity together, not just in the absence of conflict, but the presence of common purpose and cohesiveness as we move in one direction together, all for the greater cause of the gospel and the exaltation of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.